Welcome to Movement Matters. My name is Steve Carr. And in this forced perspective on New Testament restoration, we are at the final lesson. This is lesson number seven. Thanks for coming me on this with me on this journey. I've had a good time creating this stuff. I hope it's been helpful for you. You need more resources, as I say, every week on this podcast. Maybe you found this online. If so, great. But um, you you can have some additional study aids, some application articles. These resources are available to you for free at my personal website, www.houseofcar.com slash movement. That is houseofcar.com slash movement. We are at the final lesson, lesson number seven, the force of the future. I'm going to take a little bit more liberties here because throughout this study, I have been talking about uh, the restoration plea, what we believe, biblical authority, what we believe about uh, church autonomy, about Christian unity, and I've also been telling our our history. But you know, I, I would offer that the uh, a major force of the restoration movement is the force of future. And even though then I can't predict it, it's not very historical. So just, hey, ride with me on this one. We're going to have a fun way to see this out because it's going to help us to expand the way that we see the possibilities of the restoration movement. So lesson seven, the force of future, part one, a very, very, very fine house. So I'll be clear to you from the outset, my house is in no way connected to the restoration movement. But it's a nice house, though, and that's why I want to talk about it. See, this this house I've been recording these podcasts from, it was built in the late 1880s. And I live, I've mentioned I live in the city of Cincinnati. When this house was built in the 1880s, this was actually a suburb. Now, I just live two miles from the very center of downtown Cincinnati. Uh, from my top floor, I can see some of the buildings uh, of the top of downtown. But this house was built as part of a housing boom after the Civil War. And what it did was it took advantage of vertical space. So it features high ceilings and, I will say, an abundance of steps, man. Uh, It's also made entirely of wood. Uh, So, you know, to think of a house of wood being able to last that long, but, boy, the joists in my basement and in these walls are just thicker than those of today's homes. This house was built... Firmly, It was built to last over 100 years. They, I tell people, they just don't make them like this anymore. I mean, they just don't. Now, owning a whole old house brings lots of cool things about it, right? There's history in these walls. Like in the 130 years or so that it's existed, uh, dozens of families have lived in this house. And when doing repairs, I always find some sort of nod to the past. Like recently, we found some pages to an old book that we couldn't read. You know, they were so worn down. But uh, we, we actually found a locket, you know, dated back to the 1950s. I mean, hey, this might sound a little creepy, but I know of at least two people who died of old age here. So that might seem creepy. I don't tell my daughter that it might have taken place in a room or anything, right? But... um I mean, that's just, I mean, it's just interesting. There's history here. People have lived here. People have been born here. They've died here. And if you ask anybody who owns an old house, uh, they'll probably testify that it's also a labor of love. See, old houses are needy. There's always something that needs to be fixed or replaced. And since it was custom made, there are never any standard fixes, right? Any plumbing or electrical issue generally requires an extra visit to the hardware store. 
And sometimes I just feel like my life exists by fixing other people's fixes. I'll tell you too, old houses are costly, right? When, when my old house needed painting, I priced it out. The bids were ridiculously high. I just decided I was going to paint it myself. But this is a three-story home I re- 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 just said recently here. and it's, it's a tall building, so I had to rent a boom lift to get high enough to reach the very upper, le- upper levels. And even at that, I had to use like a roller on a stick to reach part of them. It was so high. It took me an entire summer to paint this house. Or just like last year, my appliances started to die. So I was like, okay, I, I, I needed to just redo things. So I was just ended up remodeling my whole kitchen. I had to gut everything, replace everything. Uh, the flooring, you know, my floors are just crazy. I mean, like you can put a ball on one end and it will just roll. And people are like, oh, you can fix that by putting the house on jacks to level it out. But then that messes up the whole house. So for me, I'm just like, look, I got to live with it. So I did the best I had. I had a flooring guy come in. But man, my floor, he fixed it. It looks solid. Man, my floor is still crooked. It's just costly. And finally, old houses can be considered inhospitable. Like our house has the original three fireplaces, but none of them are fully operational. The the HVAC system here struggles to maintain a comfortable temperature. I'm sitting here, you know, it, it should be a nice day. It's just way too hot in this house today. It stays way hot in the summer. In the winter, it's freezing. Look, I get it why people prefer new homes. Like why would you want to put up with all the headaches that come with owning an old house? Especially when all you need to do is just buy a new one. But I would tell you that the trade-off is worth the struggle because with all this stuff, old houses are unique. Old houses have history. But for me, I'm going to get deep on y'all. There's a spiritual component to it. Old houses, it provides me perspective. It leaves an impact on my mentality. It really helps me to see myself less as a homeowner and more as a caretaker. Like this house – was old before I was even born. And it's very likely that this house will outlast my life. There's an urbanist, uh, Jane Jacobs, who lived in uh, New York City years ago. She was an advocate for preserving old structures. And in one of her books, she wrote this. She, She wrote, New ideas need old buildings. New ideas need old buildings. And Jacob's words still resonate with me. So when I envision the force of future in the restoration movement, that's why I think of the movement like an old house. See, while this old house has its challenges, maybe all we just need are a few new ideas. See, throughout our history, our tribe's goal has been the restoration of the New Testament. But the motivation behind this goal transcends even our past. It, it, its focus is it, it's on impacting a world with the gospel of Jesus. And in that way, the restoration movement then has always been looking forward. And proving that the future is part of the DNA of the restoration movement isn't a challenge at all. I mean, I just have to tell you to look back at what we've talked about the restoration movement. Remember Alexander Campbell had a magazine? Remember what it was called? It was called the Millennial Harbinger. The title of that ma- magazine uh, was a- a- an ode to a popular idea in his day. And the journal was supposed to act as a harbinger. A harbinger is a thing, something to come. 
So Campbell's intention in even titling his magazine there was to try to introduce people to potential realities. Campbell wanted people to see what could be if we only restored the practices of the New Testament. And let me also look at the Cane Ridge Revival that we've talked about, right? It was during the Second Great Awakening. This was part of a broader movement that influenced the Restoration Movement. Uh, both were propelled by the anticipation of a new century. You see, flipping the calendar, uh, you know, it, it might not seem it as a significant event, but it really created hysteria in that day. Remember, it took place in 1801. People were still locked in this idea of what does it mean to live in 1800, right? They were, they, some were certain that this would result in the return of God. Friends, future is often an influencer in revival. There was another revival, the Azusa Street Revival, that started at the beginning of the 1900s. That was essentially the event that launched the modern charismatic movement. It capitalized on a spiritual yearning spawned by the coming century. Well, think back even just a few years ago to the Y2K fanaticism of the last century. There were people that thought the world was going to end. You remember there was a cult at that time, the Heaven's Gate cult from the 1990s that had a mass suicide at that time. Its founder was certain that the end of the world was there, and he basically convinced a bunch of people to take their lives thinking that the world was actually going to end. So throughout history, people have been psychologically impacted by the idea of the end of the world. It's, it's actually a psychological um, – what do I want to say? A psychological de- declaration known as – and my French is bad, y'all. I should have looked at this pronunciation. It's fin de Sicily. I don't know if Sicily is it, but for the French speaking, it's known it's, – it's French for the, the end of the century. So social science scholar Michael Herfinen noted about it. He goes, there's no reason why the turning of a century should carry any particular historical significance. The idea that history falls neatly into 100-year blocks and can only be assessed in these units is absolutely ludicrous. Yet in the supposedly Christian parts of the world where the larger sweep of time is measured in such terms, the passing of a century tends to give rise to wistful reflection on past as well as an intense speculation about the future. The arrival of landmark dates engenders a heightened sense of temporarily of time passing. Changes which are actually taking place at these junctures tend to acquire extra and sometimes mystical layers of meaning. Okay, in short, what this social science scholar is saying is that significant calendar changes bring about an anxiousness. And interestingly enough, that anxiousness seems to only be resolved by spirituality. Now, the majority of us here will be long gone when it's time for the next century change, even though in this 2020 time, it seems like we're knocking on the end of the world, right? But that's maybe why we're feeling a relentlessness just in general, right, based upon COVID-19 and all the current crises, But all of this stuff, as it impacts individuals, it impacts the restoration movement as well. And that's why it's imperative that we grapple with what lies ahead of us. The restoration movement will have no future unless we acknowledge our past. At the same time, looking forward helps us determine how to maneuver through the present today. And that's why I hope what you've seen in the study is that we have a need to look both forward and backward. So to focus on the future without considering the past limits what we do today. Part two, 
Where do we go now? The movement is living in the future we've always envisioned. I believe the founders of our fellowship, if they saw what became of the movement, they might be disappointed with our fracture and fortification. Fortification? Our fracture and our fortification. But they'd be greatly encouraged at where things stand today. They'd observe a future where the restoration movement ideals actually triumphed. Just examine the landscape of evangelical Christianity today. You'll observe that Christian unity, church autonomy, and biblical authority are everywhere. These are the New Testament values that were the basis of the Restoration plea, and they have widely been adopted and have gone mainstream among evangelicalism. They've gained a relevance beyond the Restoration movement itself. Christian unity has always been the most elusive part of the Restoration plea. Today, it's one of the most prevalent concepts in American Christianity. I'll tell you, the term evangelical is proof of this. Now, I know some people reject the moniker evangelical. They believe it undermines the biblical term Christian. But evangelical is actually an umbrella term for biblically-minded Christians. Evangelicalism is an outgrowth of the ideals of the Restoration Movement, right? The concept of church autonomy has been normalized. Note the steep decline of mainline denominations. Observe the increase of independent non-denominational churches. Restoration movement churches were once these independent outliers. Now autonomous churches are becoming the norm. And there's also an increasing number of fellowship-like networks that are not denominations, whether it be ARC or North Point or Acts 29. They provide resources without a hierarchical structure of interference. But perhaps no other plea is as popular today as the value of biblical authority. And this is noticeable in two key issues from the early days of the movement. If you remember that 200 years ago in the United States, creeds were commonplace. Okay, Creeds, these declarations of faith to which people showed uh, submission. But evangelical churches rarely use creeds anymore. And if they do, it's more just like a nod, like, isn't this nice? It's not that they read them aloud in their services. You go, go online and search a, a church and look for their belief statement, and nearly all of them begin with a, de- a declaration of the importance of the word of God. So churches continue to disregard creeds, and they embrace the Bible even more. So that's a change. Let me the one that I think it, it, we need to address and admit is the paradigm surrounding conversion has shifted. In the past two decades, baptism by immersion is now the standard form of of submission to God. It's practiced more than ever in the history of our country. And I would tell you that that is a I said this in one of the written applications. That is just a reflection of the, of the view and the changing view of biblical authority. Look, I attended a restoration movement seminary. My Bible theology ministry professors devoted, devoted considerable time to two topics. I learned a lot about infant baptism. I learned a lot about the sinner's prayer. Like they wanted me to know all about it because that was not how it was practiced in the New Testament. And now I hardly ever have conversations about this because I know of so few people who still have infant baptism in the sinner's prayer as part of their church conversion. Like it just – it doesn't exist. Ironically, the thing that I find more just fascinating is that 
immersion has been widely adopted by many Reformed Calvinist churches. This is the group with whom we argued most pointedly about baptism in the earliest days of our existence. Historically, infant baptism was essential to covenant theology, right? They were inextricably linked. But now they're performing baptism by immersion. Like it's just that argument has shifted. For the reasons above, I'd suggest that the future is now. There are those that fear that the restoration movement is near death. I'd counter that and say that we are misinterpreting the data. Ultimately, the restoration plea won. We were so invested in preaching why the New Testament should be restored that we didn't notice when everybody else finally agreed with us. So the issue before us isn't how to revive a movement that could be dying. Instead, it's how can we lead when the movement is far bigger than ourselves. I would say that obsession of previous glories kept us from charting a path forward. And I think it seems it's time that we should write a new chapter in our story. Now, some are concerned if this is going to be one of many new chapters or just our epilogue. But I would offer that death comes to movements that refuse to take risks. To move forward, the restoration movement must abandon our places of comfort. We must begin to think differently about our future. We need to recall those three points of the restoration plea. Biblical authority, church autonomy, Christian unity. And we need to think about how we wield those three in an ever-changing world. So this might be where I lose you, I'm going to admit, but I'm going to suggest some ways in which I believe that we in the restoration movement need to see the opportunities for the king before us. And then that first thing, we must limit our absolutes. We must limit our absolutes. On the surface, this might sound heretical, but I promise you it's not. Let me provide an early example to highlight my thinking. In the late 1980s, there was a mild controversy in the restoration movement concerning Saturday night worship services. They were intended to reach people unable to attend worship on Sundays. They were really successful in attracting lapsed Catholics to come to our churches. Uh, for, for those people, attending mass on a Saturday night was normal. So attending a, a Christian church on a Saturday night meant nothing. Now, some in our fellowship were appalled by this practice. They're like, look, the book of Acts says Christians gathered on the first day of the week. Saturday is not the first day of the week. This must be in opposition to the Bible. I read articles. I even heard a few sermons about this controversy. You know, decades later, I hear no one talk about Saturday night worship services. In fact, I know some restoration movement churches that have experimented with Thursday night worship services. And if you look at what has happened during the 2020 coronavirus quarantine, almost all churches started having services digitally where somebody could watch it any day at any hour. This tension over Saturday night worship reflects our inability to grapple with conviction. Yes, previous generations in the Restoration Movement held tightly to certain dogmas, but just because they did doesn't mean that those dogmas were actually biblical. Quite a few beliefs that were uh, that people believe are essential to the Restoration Movement were actually adopted in our affiliation with fundamentalism, right? Our, our move towards the fundamentalists actually changed aspects of what we thought was essential. Can, I mean, you know what? Now I've gone from preaching to metal. And can I talk about alcohol really quickly today i this there's even more divisiveness around this issue many denominations and even many in our movement embraced a teetotaling and abstinence position on alcohol during 
uh, prohibition in the United States. Um, but in the Restoration Movement, our adherence to that concept goes back even further. Alexander Campbell penned an entire document I read about uh, the consumption of alcohol. And his position then, back in the early 20th century, was that um, the Bible takes a total abstinence position on alcohol. Um, I, again, reading through that document, I would tell you that many of his views and interpretations were reliant on modern-day conjecture. Like he actually in this document, Campbell – God bless him, right? Said that the wine that Jesus drank at the Last Supper was definitely unfermented and talked about the quote unquote science behind us. But archaeologists and even <laughs> lovers of the vino have declared that this was an impossibility in that day. The wine that Jesus drank had alcohol in it. And I know some of you are ready to throw down on me right now, but I would just say that such biblical arguments just reflect poor hermeneutic bad biblical interpretation. Okay, so just to look at this, just let's pan out right here. There's nothing bad about abstaining from alcohol, but there's, there's quite a few arguments for it. And in your context, drinking might be a cultural stigma that Christians should not participate in. However, the Bible, while it condemns the abuse of alcohol, does not condemn the consumption of it as sinful. It requires a coercing of the scriptures to get to that position. Right, So the reason I want to talk about this is that's what I say when we have to limit our absolutes. Uh, in the Restoration Movement, dogmas are interconnected with fears of theological liberalism. Right, I get we're people used to, being, uh, used to biblical authority being attacked, but at the same time, there's perhaps no danger to our plea greater than the manipulation of biblical authority to maintain our extra-biblical Dogmas. That is my $5 way of saying when we say the Bible says something that it does not, that is more dangerous than being theologically liberal in many ways. At least it's equal to it, correct? In the future, our challenge is going to be delineating from absolutes and preferences. And there's going to be debates that continue to come, right? I've mentioned some of those previously. So we're going to have to, to figure out what it means to be biblically faithful Christians and deal with subjects like women in ministry and online campuses and political engagement. But that's why we must be dedicated to letting the Bible speak where it speaks and letting it be silent where it is silent. We mustn't draw new battle lines based on old fights. Second thing, after the absolutes, we must contain our independence. Let me explain what I mean by this example. I had a friend years ago. He had a moral failure. After being fired by one Restoration Movement church, he was immediately hired by another. And to protect this congregation from something I thought they were unaware, I reached out to the church. My, now, my hope was that he would one day be restored. But I also wanted to help the church, the Christian church, avoid some controversy. I, I thought they wouldn't hire the guy if they knew of his recent sin. But their response to me was terse, and they told me, it is none of your business. I was shocked that a Restoration Movement church wouldn't care about this type of sin. And I was further astonished to hear that two other ministers felt like I did and actually contacted that church as well. So three ministers contacted the independent church to warn them about this, and they disregard all three. They felt that their freedom outweighed the spiritual concerns of us in ministry. Now, this anecdote just illustrates how fiercely independent our churches are, and that can potentially lead us astray. Autonomy can keep us from fellowshipping across the congregational lines. It can 
can lead to detachment. This is why I devoted that entire lesson to fortification. A reminder, this was a recent phenomenon in the Restoration Movement. In early years, collaboration was a necessity. Uh, for years, connectivity in the Restoration Movement was maintained through our institutional networks. Think Bible colleges, publications, conventions. But the influence of those institutions are waning. And in the future, we're going to be forced to be more intentional about seeking like-minded relationships. But unfortunately, our views of independence have kept us somewhat isolated. The earliest leaders in our movement were bold advocates of church autonomy. At the same time, they made extraordinary efforts to stay connected. While this passion is lacking today, I don't believe it's intentionally avoided. I, I believe it reveals another societal trend, and that's it's becoming increasingly difficult to keep churches operating. I'm talking about finances. Philanthropy levels continue to decline. Budgets are becoming constricted. Church leaders may desire to maintain relationships with other churches, but I think they're more concentrated on keeping their own church afloat. So it's not that we necessarily oppose collaboration. It's just a lower priority, and that's why I offer that we need to commit to staying connected. Which is, this responsibility is primarily going to fall on ministry staffers because they have the greatest opportunity to seek and cement partnerships. But elders in the local church are going to have to encourage their staffers to keep their local church connected with other ones, whether it's through conferences or events or collaborating on service projects. If being a little less independent allows us to get a more robust view of the kingdom of God, I think it's a win. Let me give you a third thing. We have to aggressively pursue unity. I got to tell you a story. A while back, an old college classmate of mine from from Bible college, he reached out to me. He was applying for a grant for his church that was specifically tied to the restoration movement. But the granting organization didn't believe his church was actually part of the restoration movement. Now, to be fair, it was a church that he planted, so it was younger. It didn't have a lot of history. Unfortunately, I still feel this today. I think there might have been a racial component to it. You see, my minister friend happens to be African-American. But even though he graduated from a Restoration Movement seminary and was previously employed by a Restoration Movement church, he grew up in a black Baptist church, and they considered him to be Baptist. So he came to me frustrated, and he said, Hey, Steve, how does one join the Restoration Movement? And I had to tell him, I was like, uh, you, you can't really. There's no official way to join. I said, you know what we need to do? He said, what? I said, we got to get you in the book. Do you remember last lesson I explained to you this thing called the Directory of Ministry, a list of church institutions and ministers? If you get into that book, that's like our official publication. That's as close to the denomination we had still seemed to be authoritative. So what I had to do was submit a recommendation with an application that he had from another person. All of this worked. My friend's church got listed in the director of ministry. He was able to obtain this restoration movement grant, and it all ended up well. But it was – the story ended well. Man, that exercise, it, it, left a, it left a pain in my heart. It's an aspect of my greatest lament. There's no path for somebody to become part of the restoration movement. I'll tell you, there's no path to become part and to join the restoration movement apart from your church, right? So say you have your values of the restoration plea and you want to become a part of the movement. Either you have to convince your entire church to change or you just need to switch churches altogether. Even if that church already espouses those aspects of the plea, 
that we hold so dearly. <sighs> Friends, the quest for unification will not be achieved passively. We have to actively engage other faith traditions with our plea. It can't just be limited, by the way, for us saying, hey, you should join us. I think more specifically, we need to extend invitations for other Christians to journey with us. Unity is the greatest opportunity that lies before us. And we must pursue commonality with those who already accept our New Testament ideals. Part three, a million things I haven't done. So let's consider this in the light of the opening illustration from this lesson. I stated that we in the Restoration Movement live in an old house, and this abode comes then with a classic tension. We must consider the past, live in the present, anticipate the future. So this means that we appreciate the history in this house. That's what makes it special. But still, the house must be a livable and practical place for contemporary use. If you can't live in the house today, then it might make sense just to walk away. You could leave it vacant. You could find a new house in a better neighborhood. So if we're going to view the movement as an old house, we have to determine, is it worth keeping? And from my perspective, as someone who owns an old house, maybe that's what's speaking through me, but I'm just telling you, I think it's worth it. Now, living in an old house does not demand that we maintain it as a museum. We're not obligated for it to be frozen in time. We don't have to keep around old antiques to make it look as if it existed in a certain time period. But the spirits of those who have lived here previously will always be present. You know what you call that in an old house? Those are the ghosts. But friends, understand this. Houses are not built for ghosts. They're built for people, and we need to create livable space, not just for today, but for the future. So I'll admit our movement is an aging structure. It might not be as cool as some of the newer networks and fellowships on the scene, and there might be some remodeling required, but this structure is solid. It's lasted way longer than anyone imagined. It might take some work, but it will be worth it. All right, that's my diatribe. I'm at the end of this thing. And I just have one final thought as I conclude this. And yes, I am going to end with the musical Hamilton. So like many Americans, young and old, I got into the musical. That's because I have women in my household who listen to the track on repeat. And I guess by osmosis, I became a fan. But I will grant you is that the the dynamic thing about the musical Hamilton is that it is full of lyrics that are aphorisms and layers of complexity that make it such a fascinating, fascinating listen. So last year, I finally had the opportunity when it came to town to see the musical in person, and it was quite impactful. And there's a song that I was so excited to hear. It's one of the first catchy tunes of the musical. It's the song My Shot, where the character of Alexander Hamilton talks about the coming revolution. He makes a statement. I find it to be profound. He says the phrase, this is not a moment, it's a movement. This is not a moment, it's a movement. Now, to be fair, maybe that was just a throwaway line that sound catchy, sounded catchy at the time, right? But personally, 
it impacted me. And I can't think of that without thinking about the restoration movement. Because I love the idea of differentiating between moments and movements. See, moments are events that occurred and then became relegated to history. Moments are events that are frozen in time, forever linked with certain dates and locations. There have been endless moments in history, and there will undoubtedly be endless more to come. Movements, however, are more malleable. They generate life and transcend both time and place. Yet when movements die, they become something altogether different. They are then nothing more than a collection of moments. The quest to restore New Testament Christianity, friends, continues to be a movement, but it is flirting with moment status. To be successful, we cannot continue on this present course. We need to live up to the calling of the middle child. We must steer clear of the legalism and the libertarianism of the poles and maneuver toward the middle way. The Restoration Movement wasn't a perfect experiment. We had battles and breaks along the way, but perhaps these missteps were actually a blessing in disguise. Perhaps they presented us an opportunity to once again elevate Jesus to his rightful place as hero of our movement. Perhaps it was so that we could finally admit our shortcomings and find ourselves in Jesus so that he may redeem the work of our hands. My prayer for our fellowship are the words of the Apostle Paul from Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. My sisters and brothers, may the God of peace be with you. That is Movement Matters. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Hey, feel free to access resources, to keep in touch, to, to, to see how, to let me know how this is just working in you on my website, www.houseofcar/movement, houseofcar.com/movement. Thanks for listening.